Welcome to the Sharkpreneur Podcast with Kevin Harrington and Seth Green. Kevin Harrington is the inventor of the infomercial, one of the original sharks from the hit TV show Shark Tank, and has generated over $5 billion in TV and digital direct response sales. Seth Green is the world's first trusted authority on cutting-edge direct response marketing, a best-selling author, and the only three-time Marketer of the Year nominee. On the podcast, Kevin and Seth interview sharkpreneurs who share straight talk on what it takes to explode your business. Why do so many businesses struggle while others seem to explode overnight? Do you wish you had the secret to this type of exponential growth? Now, I've scaled more than 20 businesses to over $100 million, and it's not just luck. In my new book with Mark Tim, Mentor to Millions, you'll learn the repeatable framework I use in all my business ventures for massive success. Order at KevinMentor.com and get over $1,000 in bonuses. Head to KevinMentor.com. Welcome to the podcast. This is your host, Seth Green. Today, I've got the good fortune to be interviewing Dr. Dana McNeil. She is a licensed marriage and family therapist and the founder of The Relationship Place. She specializes in couples therapy and utilizes something we're big fans of, the Gottman Method, to help her clients. She is also, she's a certified Gottman Method therapist and a bringing home baby instructor. She regularly contributes to media publications like Oprah Living, Martha Stewart Living, Reader's Digest, AARP. She's the resident relationship expert on the Cox Communication Show, I Do. She's being featured in an upcoming documentary on the art of couples therapy and hosts the podcast, The D-Spot all about modern relationships. Dr. Dana, thank you so much for joining us. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me. This is great. All right. So let's go back in time a little bit. What inspired you to become a relationship expert in the first place? A very circuitous route. So I used to work in the corporate world. I was a property damage claims adjuster for travelers insurance. Well, that's the normal career path (laughs) for a therapist. Sure it was. And so I did a lot of um, catastrophe work and a a lot of it required that I understand my client's trauma. You know, if if I go to look at your house and a tree fell on it from a hurricane, I could not get my work done. My clients wanted to take me into the basement. They wanted to show me where they hid. I needed to help them process their trauma so that I could get my job done. And then I sort of found I liked that aspect of it. I liked being there for clients. I liked, you know, helping them witness something that when you have a big stage catastrophe, you don't get a lot of support because you have survivor's guilt, right? There's so many people in your community that didn't survive. The last thing that we're thinking we should be doing is indulging in self-care or worrying about ourselves. And so those clients were not being served. And so I had an opportunity and it sort of just morphed into becoming a therapist. That is absolutely fascinating. I guarantee you, if I interview a hundred therapists, I will not hear that story 99 other times that, so you then decided, Hey, I like this aspect of my job. I'm going to make that a separate career. Um, How did you discover the, I mean, Gottman is obviously one of the gurus, thought leaders that we all admire in the niche. How did you find him and how did you become, how did you take that path? Good question. So simultaneously, I wasn't just living in a box being a claims adjuster. I also was in a relationship and my partner and I were both divorced. He had kids. He lived in another state. I'm like hot mess express, right? We need to figure out how to be good 
before I ask him to move here or allow him to move here or even take this relationship any further. So being the learner and researcher that I am, I studied and the Gottman method had the highest success rate. It seemed to resonate with our personalities the most. And so when I started calling around um, to make appointments with Gottman therapists in my area, there were only two certified ones. And one told me long distance relationships don't work. You can break up. Wow, that's great advice. I mean, that reminds me, we had years ago, um, a dog trainer was one of our clients. And I'll never forget the the story he told us about the time he said to the client, there's no hope, just put your dog down. Right. And I said, I don't think I can market that. <laughs> So that one was a bust. And then the other one wasn't returning my phone calls. So we bought the seven principles book, which is John's most famous sort of well-known book. And we Skyped every Sunday for two hours and went through the entire book from cover to cover doing the exercises ourselves. And wow. it impacted my relationship in a significant way. I felt more prepared for dealing with difficult situations and managing conflict. And so I had the opportunity to go back to grad school. I have a personality that works well with couples um, and I believed in the Gottman method. So here I am. Well, obviously you skipped over a large <laughs> chunk from got, went back to school and got certified to here I am. <laughs> I didn't know how much you want me to get into it with you. I mean, that, that, that was a lot. Yes, it was a big deal. I left the corporate world. I worked three jobs so that I could get my hours. I had a solo practice and within a year and a half, I started a group practice and COVID hit. So business was booming. Couples are desperately in need of, of couples therapy. And so now today I have 21 employees. Wow, that is absolutely incredible. And I'm sure the longer version of that journey, if it isn't a book already, we'll make sure to put it in the one that you're going to end up publishing through us. <laughs> so let's dive in. Why do you think, um, why do so many marriages end in divorce? What is the epidemic going on in our country? Interesting. That's the reason end in divorce. Really, but the one pop divorce these days is over 50. So gray divorce is what we call it. And one out of every four divorces that's happening are our clients that are over 50. Not on so COVID reduced our divorce rate a little bit. People were not wanting to move and they weren't didn't want to make changes. They didn't have other places to go. So our divorce rate dropped in 2020 to 43%, which is not what the national average has been. But amongst that percentage, 34% of them were couples that were over 50 years old. And many of and many of them had been married 20, 30, 40 years. So we're living longer. We're expecting more from our relationships. We want our partner to be our best friend, to be a co-parent, to be the person that goes shopping with me, that helps me braid my hair. I mean, we ask so much of our partners. It's not the way that it used to be. It wasn't that like, you have good childbearing hips. We're only going to live to 40. You, we should do this thing, right? We want more of ours. We expect more. We've got kids that are staying at home longer, that are putting strains on relationships. We have more financial issues than we've ever had. Addiction is up. Um, just during COVID, substance misuse is up 300%. Pornography misuse is up 60%. Domestic violence is up 30%. There's a lot of reasons that we're getting divorced, but we're feeling more unsatisfied with our relationships and we're giving ourselves permission to do something about it. 
Wow. So, I mean, we could spend the next 20 minutes unpacking the statistics that you just rattled off. So we don't have time for all of them, but I definitely want to go into some of them. So my parents also great divorce. They were almost, you know, married like 30 years. So is it that that's such an interesting 10. Do you think it's the, we're going to wait till the kids are out of the house and grown up enough. And now we can, now I can say, no, I want to be happy with my golden years. And I wasn't, wasn't happy. That's one of the reasons. One, one of the reasons is also we are not in the same place that we were when we first got married. If you've been married 30, 40, 50 years, when I first got married, I was in my 20s and it was enough that my partner and I both liked Depeche Mode and sushi. Like that was the <laughs> basis of our relationship, right? And so, yeah, it's like, we should get married. We have so much in common. I would never ask any more details about like, hey, what are your finances like? How much student debt do you have? What are you, you know, what's your credit rating? I want to buy a house at some point. And so now as we get older, there's a flurry of reasons. One is, um, you know, not to be ignored is our sex life. If you have a partner that has some, say they have diabetes or they have heart issues or they're on a medication and your sex life is not matched, right? That maybe that feels like that's not okay with me or retirement is not as exciting as people claim that it is. The first two years after retirement, the um, statistic for clinical depression is 40%. Wow. And so what happens is maybe I was CEO and I come home and I you've been, you know, taking care of the house, our kids doing all the traditional things because that age group was doing the traditional thing. They fell into traditional gender roles. I don't need a CEO of the house. I've been fine for the last 30 years. Thank you very much. I think the pantry is organized very well. Thank you. I don't need you to come in and tell me how to do it. So there's a lot of different reasons, but most of them is that this generation, they've got children, you know, the the millennials and the 30 year olds that are like, I'm going to live my best life. They're modeling for their parents. You only have so much time on this planet and maybe you need to do something that makes your heart sing. And if it's not being with your partner, you will survive it and you will be okay. It's more complicated. It's more messy. There's more to divide up. There's 401ks, there's kids, but you know, people are embracing a different way of viewing the world. Wow, that is so fascinating. Now, you mentioned in your um, stat example, you talked about how we are more dissatisfied. We are expecting more from our partner. Uh, What part does social media play into that? Because if you think about it, my wife talked about it yesterday, I think it was yesterday on, or two weeks ago on her podcast, where she was talking about mom guilt. And she was talking Mm -hmm. about, don't look at social media and make yourself feel bad because everyone else is posting pictures of a fabulous vacation or they're happy. They're only posting their highlight reel. Yes. So Theodore Roosevelt phrased, you know, comparison is the thief of joy. My favorite phrase, right? Because we don't see what's happening before and after the picture. If we're at Disneyland and I get the family to like make this happy smile and then you, I've seen it. They put the camera down. They're like, come on, let's go. We're going to be late. Right. It's like, what, what, what happened? Why are you creating this facade of what you want other people to think your life is like? And then how disappointing it must be to know that yours isn't really like that, but somehow you believe that all the other pictures are true. You don't have the insight to think, well, if we staged ours, perhaps they're staging theirs. No, that doesn't occur to us. We don't have that. That is so true. We never, like my wife will Say, oh, look at that vacation, or look, they got a they got a gorgeous pool, or look, and I'm and my answer is always, you don't know where the money came from. 
Right. You don't know how much debt they're in. Right. right. You don't know, maybe they're expecting all their kids to go to public college. And I'm planning as if all three are going to expensive private school and I got to pay for the whole thing myself. Or they've maxed out three credit cards and the interest rate, they're never going to get out of debt. And so they've decided that they can't retire um, for 10 more years and they're supposed to have retired last year. You right. don't know, you're not, you don't have, you're not a couples therapist. You're not sitting in the office hearing about the things that are going on in their relationships. Yeah. You never know what goes on behind closed doors. We've had that experience where we had friends who like told us they were getting divorced and we were like, oh my, your newsfeed looks like you're ecstatically married for the last 10 years. Yeah. Yeah. So let's add in another stressor to that. Let's for our entrepreneurial couples where one or both partners own a business Let's talk about how that impacts marriage as well. Well, the problem is, and I can speak to that because at one point my partner was very busily helping out in my business. We didn't talk about anything else, nothing. It was like, even when we were at dinner, like, did you see that employee do that? Did you read that email? We weren't spending any time on our relationship. We weren't reminding each other, what are the things that we care about? Why is this person so amazing? Why am I so in love with this person? We were so caught up in like talking about statistics and finances and business and mortgages and, you know, credit card statements that we lost a big part of our life because we never had a break from work. That is so, so true. I... When we go on a date, my I, I will be the one to try and be anal and set ground rules and say, <laughs> like, she'll tell me I don't want to hear about work. And then if I say, well, can we not talk about the kids? Uh, then we're like, <laughs> are we going to bitch about our parents? Like, what's left? So yeah. Yeah. how do you balance that? How do you deal with that? How do you find not only that time, but those topics of conversation that aren't the let me tell you everything I did all day and vent my like vent my stress to you. Well, why is it we were able to do it at the beginning of our relationships? We hold, held each other in such positive perspective and we wanted to know everything about the other person. We were so curious. Just because I found out from you some statistics about what it was like when you were a kid doesn't mean there isn't still stuff to learn about you for the rest of our life. Because you felt one way doesn't mean you're going to continue to feel that way throughout the course of your relationship. I know that, you know, maybe you could be talking about spiritual concepts. Maybe you could be talking about an existential crisis. Maybe you could talk about politics or how you feel about Supreme Court rulings. There's plenty of things to still talk about with your partner. We just get in this rut and we go over the same road over and over and over again because it's an easy go-to and then we go on autopilot and then we wonder why our relationships don't feel exciting. That is so true. So I think if I'm hearing you correctly, you're saying that if we did the things we did while we were dating and on our best behavior and wooing our partner, and we just kept doing them, we'd never end up divorced. And we don't seem to be able to sustain holding our partner in a positive perspective, right? We used to say, oh, you're just running late, Seth. You must have had a call with someone. I bet you're going to get a new deal. I know you still love me versus now like you're 30 minutes late, Seth. You know, that irritates me. Don't you care about my time? What happens? Why do we go Damn. from like, giving you the benefit of the doubt to now assuming that you're just doing something to irritate me? That is so true. I will tell my wife, I will say, <laughs> I've never tried to offend you in our entire life together. I have never purposely wanted to hurt your feelings. So you have to know that if you think you're offended or you're upset, it was on accident. And if you ask a question, I will give you an answer and you'll go, oh, he wasn't trying to piss me off. Yeah. Yeah. And we don't, 
it feels too vulnerable to say, hey, I'm feeling a little ignored or I'm wondering if, you know, you meant to say it that way or maybe I didn't receive it the right way. That just for the majority of us just feels too scary. We assume we lead with this frustration because we have this own internal dialogue and we're worried that we're not important to our partner. So we just act as if the things that they're doing are because they're frustrated. So we're not even having a conversation. I'm just filling in the blanks and jumping onto your side of it versus like, Seth, it's hard for me when you're late and it's starting to feel like you're disrespecting my time. What can we do? Because I know you don't feel that way about me. I know you love me. It's just making me feel real triggered right now. Can we talk about some other solution? We do not talk like that. Oh my God. I was just going to say that was such an elegant way to have that conversation. Those softeners in there would make me feel like so non-judged, non-attacked because one of my issues is defensiveness. And I have to try, I have, the phrase I came up with for myself is deflect, don't defend. Oh, okay. So when she goes, I'm mad at you for X, mm. my default response for like the last 17 years of, of marriage was you shouldn't be mad at me for X. Either I didn't do it and you're accusing the wrong person or it wasn't meant to upset you. And what I discovered, and it took me a while to figure this out because I wasn't working with you, but <laughs> what it took me a while to figure out was then she would be mad that I defended myself. So she was mad about the first thing. Now she's mad that I didn't just hear her. So I made it worse. And I realized that if I just say, even if she's like, you moved my blank. Mm. And I know I didn't move it. If I just say, oh my God, I'm so sorry, honey. I will help you find it. She gets to the point of finding it much. She gets to the point much faster of going, oh crap, I moved it and forgot. Or Lily, our youngest, who usually moves things, moved it, and I'm so sorry I blamed you. Whereas if I argue with her, she will eventually hopefully get to the point where she realizes she didn't move it, but the apology will be so much less because she got madder because I didn't just immediately, let's say, validate. And you can validate without taking responsibility and making it seem like you're also attacking your own character. So you can say things like, I can see that that, you know, if you knew that you didn't move it. You're like, I did not move that thing, that key set of keys she's looking for. You can, you can say, I can see that you're really frustrated. This is hard for you. You're trying to go somewhere. You've got yes. kids to get to soccer practice. You can't find your keys. Let me help you look for them. That's a, it, that's a way of kind of like navigating that, right? Yes. Or I could see why you thought that I moved them because you know that you didn't. Something where you're acknowledging their perspective, but you're not attacking your own character. That's even better than what I came up with. <laughs> Imagine <laughs> well, it's, that. It's, it's normal. It is normal. Like, so John talks about the four horsemen and two yep. of them, are what you just talked about, criticism, right? None of us do well. Whenever a sentence starts with you, I'm already like, sucking it down into the couch cushions verse. And then the only explanation I can do is get defensive. It feels like my partner who I care the most about in the world, whose opinion of me means more than anything has just told me that I am not of good character, or at least that's what my psyche has told me. So you're going to try to get it right so that she still loves you. That's just survival right? So the antidote is what we've been talking about. If she wants to attack you, if she can remember that behind every criticism, there's an unmet need. She's worried mm. that people don't care enough about her to make sure that she gets on time to things and that they're moving things and not being mindful of her, right? And so 
your your hopeful antidote for defensiveness is can you find something that you can take responsibility for not all of it that's not your jam you don't have to like fall on the sword every time that is excellent an excellent point now for our business owners which listening what are some coping skills we can develop to help us let's say not bring the stress of work home where it compounds and then we maybe aren't in the most resourceful state and then that makes what's happening at home worse when it didn't have to be a couple of things and i can tell you what i do anyways because i'm a business owner so i do not work at home anymore um i just i know you're you're like i get it it's easier to work at home but there is no closure there's no like hmm. door symbolically closed. There's no keys turning in. So even when I'm seeing clients, I am at home right now, but even when I'm seeing clients by video, I go to my office to do it. It separates that. That means something different to me. I also have what I call, or the Gottman's call, a ritual of connection on the way home. I have specific things that I do for myself that represent I'm shutting off work and I'm in home mode. So I, you know, put the windows down. I drive through the park because I have lots of different ways that I can go home. The park is soothing to me. It reminds me of time spent with my family. I listen to 80s because I'm a total 80s nerd. And Love I just it. like tell myself I'm going home, right? Work is done for the day. I'm going home. And then when I get home, my partner knows because we've had conversations about it. I don't talk to him for 30 minutes. I go home, I go in my room, I change my clothes, which is also symbolic. I'm taking off my work clothes, I'm putting on my pajamas if it's late, or I, you know, something, washing my hands, maybe the dog has come in and I'm late, I lay on the bed with him for a little bit and pet him, and I get myself in a mindset where I can be present with my family, and then I come out and enjoy the evening with them. It may not work for everybody, but you've got to figure out what is the symbols that you're giving to your brain that it's time to shut off and start doing family time. I think that is an I think that is an awesome idea. I think, you know, when we were stuck, at least in my state, when we were working from home for three months during the height of the pandemic, I would say, you know, my laptop was in the bedroom and I'd be there's a little desk there and I'd be like. I got to get back to the office. There is no separation. Yeah, no. I feel like I'm, even if it's not on, even if I'm not working, but the fact that I can see it and we're in bed going to sleep and yep. I can still see it makes me feel like I'm always working. So I agree a hundred percent. And I love the rituals that you talked about because so many of us don't have those. There's no, like, for example, it doesn't go so well when let's say the prosecuting attorney goes home and then forgets to turn it off and is deposing his wife. Yes, yes. Even like to the point where I have two phones, I have a work phone and I have a personal phone and I leave the work phone at the front door. I don't even look at it the rest of the night. Bar, you know, Barbara Corcoran from Shark Tank told me the same thing when I asked her how she balanced it all. And she said, balance is BS, boundaries yeah. rule. And she said, I have a work phone and a personal phone. I physically turn the work phone off on Friday at five o'clock or whatever, and no one can get me till Monday. I don't care if there's an emergency, no one's going to die. Well, I, I will let my staff call me because they're therapists. Right, I was going to say, you might have a legit life and death yes. emergency phone call. But they will call my personal number and they know the difference between something that can wait and something that's a crisis. Yeah, if someone's life is at stake and they need support, you can call my personal phone. But if it's just somebody wanting to reschedule an appointment, that certainly can wait until the next day. 
Absolutely. Your passion is obvious. What do you love? So what do you like so much about what you do? There is this gift that my clients give me every day that I get to be a placeholder in their life and part of their relationship and see a vulnerability that the rest of us don't get to experience. I am like given this amazing gift of letting me be part of an experience that is scary, painful, overwhelming, and sometimes fantastically rewarding. And I I just feel so grateful for all of those clients that allowed me to be part of their journey. That is beautiful. Other than the Gottman books, what are some of your favorites? You mean besides yours? Because I did read it. Well, thank you very much. I greatly appreciate the plug. <laughs> um, you know, I I don't read a lot of self-help books because I do this all day long, but um, I, I see. Does that mean you should give me some novel recommendations? I like fiction. I mean, I just like to get away from things for a while. And I very much like biographies. I love to know like the real life drama of how somebody like grew up and then like how they became famous or how like life handed them, you know, everyone believes that luck is something that happens and luck is something that's made. Right. And so how diligent they are and how much grit somebody has. I just really like reading books about somebody's journey that's actual real life and maybe not like a self-help thing. Um, and fiction is just a great escape. Uh, who's your favorite fiction writer? It's like asking me to choose which of my f- children are my favorite. Okay. What um, are some <laughs> fiction writers that you like? Um, I really like Taylor Jenkins Reid right now. I don't know if you know who she is, but she's a very talented um, kind of women's fiction romance. And so there's always like interesting characters and she travels back in time and she's got well fleshed out, um, you know, portraits of the people that are in her book. So on the spot, that's probably who I would say. She's Fair enough. A, she has a new book out now. So maybe that's why it's on my radar. Probably. Uh, You mentioned your love of 80s music. Favorite movie soundtrack? Oh, geez. Again, with the questions that are not fair. Um, (laughs) I am like a total vinyl junkie, so I have pretty much all of them on soundtrack. Breakfast Club is very much up there. Say Anything is pretty awesome, Mm -hmm. too. Um, Pretty in Pink is good. All the things. Yes. Good taste. Awesome. For our folks watching and listening who want to learn more, where is the best place for us to send them? Lots of places. If you want to hang out with me directly, you can always go to my website. It's www. I don't have a doctor in that. That's on my Instagram. So it's danamcneil.com. We also do intensive. So if people want to come spend a weekend with me or one of my therapists from anywhere in the United States, it's therapygetaway.com. And then my practice is SD, short for San Diego, which is where I'm at, relationshipplace.com. And that's two P's. Awesome. And make sure to go check out the D-Spot podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, iHeartRadio, Pandora, and Audible. Dr. Dana, thank you so much for spending some time with us. This was a lot of fun. Of course. It was awesome. I love your wife too. So this is like a special treat to get to hang out with you this time. Thank you very much. Thanks everybody for watching or listening. We will talk to you or see you next time. Do you need money to fund your idea, product, or service? Are you ready to take your business to the next level, but need capital to get it done? Kevin Harrington has heard more than 50,000 pitches and knows how to help you make the perfect pitch to get the funding for your entrepreneurial dream. He's distilled the process down in his perfect pitch cheat sheet, and it's yours for free. Just text PITCH to him right now at 727-888-2100. Text PITCH to 727-888-2100 right now and claim your free 
perfect pitch cheat sheet. Text PITCH to 727-888-2100 to start funding your dream today. This show has been produced by Market Domination, LLC. To discover how you can have your own show completely done for you and turn it into a real published book and become the authority in your marketplace, go to www.marketdominationllc.com slash podcast offer. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs>